waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. Getting back just to astrology, because some of the problems that exist in regard to astrology also exist in regard to stage theory, which is scientific. There are people that don't subscribe to any kind of astrology partly because as you were saying, you know, the prediction rates aren't great, but there are people that use astrology without using the prediction side of it. They use it more as a typology for sorting out, you know, do I want to date this person? Do I want to have children with this person or whatever? Because it's a typology and it's a typology that can get fairly refined when you get into it because there are, apart from whatever the main sign, which usually is the sun sign, or it could be the moon sign, whatever you take to be the main sign that this person has, there are lots of other iterations that surround that, that refine that. But again, some people wouldn't use this because they feel, as you said, that it sort of dehumanizes people to have, to apply a map is standardized. I, I would say that, again, the, the, all of the typologies are applying maps that are standardized. If people object to applying those maps, what they are then using is their own ego to apply the categories. You, you can't get around having categories for the way you see other people, the way they look to you, the way they smell to you, the way they sound to you. You have categories. If you're using a typology, those categories are standardized on some map and there's some agreement about those categories being significant in terms of determining different types of adults, different kinds of people. I mentioned astrology because it's popular with some people. I would say, I would say probably large numbers of people all over the world. 
um, do uh, use astrology to try to sort out who is like what. Another typology that's used a lot is the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which has been developed scientifically, does have a very, very good scientific replicability, reliability, and some other features. It's used often in a business setting to try to sort out types of people who could work better together instead of fighting all the time and feeling that you know they're threatened by each other. Human design is kind of a variant of astrology, and it looks at some things that come from the I Ching, from this, this uh, oracle. Uh, the I Ching is a Chinese oracle. Uh, some parts of astrology are, are oracular. You can forecast using astrology. But human design puts together this oracle with astrology and tries to give you a map, again, of differences. It's, it's very complex. It has lots and lots of categories. I, I've looked at it. I, I don't understand it. I, I feel like it's an interesting typology. You've also um, mentioned the Enneagram as well. Enneagram is something that's that's less scientific. You know, I mean, e even astrology has more sort of scientific investigations than Enneagram is sort of like sorting out your opinions about yourself and others. It's a, a self-assessment tool that, you know, says, are you this kind of person? And do you do these kinds of things? So you can assort yourself on a self-assessment scale, which includes other people also the way you see and feel and hear other people so all of these typologies give maps for our differences and typically are used to help people feel at ease with each other and to reduce conflict to reduce particularly the threat of a conflict that really threatens you i believe that we can reduce the threat of conflict without applying these typologies but i also think that when we are trying to understand, for example, how, say, somebody could awaken, and let's just say Osama bin Laden, you know, could awaken to the vast sort of love and uh, network of interdependence, and then come back from that awakening and want to eliminate a whole category of people, I, I believe that it's because of his stage of development, and I could illustrate it using uh, stages of development. When you wake up and you bring it back to your home, to your life, to your relationships, you are going to look at it through the window that you already have, through your own confirmation, you know, beliefs that you have a bias that this and this and this is true. You're going to look at it through your own negativity bias that you feel this and this and this is negative and doesn't, is, should not you know, be admitted to the room, so to speak. There are these differences in these frames of reference that adults subscribe to, that adults will use to sort out their experience. There are differences that have been scientifically developed, well-developed, well, let's say, investigated, are definitely good science. And they involve stages that unfold for adult development and some stages are simpler and more reactive than other stages of adult development. And when you look at the whole unfolding, what you begin to see is it's like paradigms of science, that it goes from an uninvestigated world of reactivity to a highly investigated world of sensitivity to differences and room for ambiguity and uncertainty and uh, 
you know, and the importance of making hypotheses rather than assuming that you know the truth. So that that development, that unfolding of adult development means you've got many different kinds of people relating to each other in the world of news, for example, online interactive news, but you have fewer stages of development in any domain where you might be living or working if it's a domain that sorts people out. For example, if you work in a university and you're in a department of social science or physical science, it's likely there are probably only three stages of development there because of various constraints on getting there. You know, if you're if you're building houses and the people that you work with have been kind of gone through the initiation of construction and so on, you're likely to have there also only about three stages of development, represented adult development. And when you get into religious groups and you get into psychedelic groups and so on, again, you're going to have fewer stages of development that are represented in that group because of the things that are required to be in the group that draw people into the group. But when you get into something that's online or something that involves, let's say the universe of people coming on from all over the world, you have all the stages of development there and they're all in a food fight with each other and it's not sorted out. So it's a particularly hard environment to establish any truth in to establish any reality. That's why I think this idea of fake news or disinformation or misinformation, it's its really not possible to sort out everything from the internet because it represents all these different stages of development, views of reality, hypotheses about what's going on. And it's not self-limiting. There's nothing that is limiting. I mean, you have to own a computer or you have to use a computer. I suppose that's limiting, but many people do know of many, many different kinds of, you know, you probably have your copper Eskimos with computers with no pronouns at all. And then you have your, you know, these hyped up individualist North Americans who, who have like 54 pronouns for one case. <laughs> so it's like a very, very large group of people on the internet. Well, a world of people, really. So I guess I wanted to point that part out about stages of development, about typologies, that we use typologies to try to sort out differences, and that I think what we're going to be doing here in bringing stage theory on stage is we're going to try to look in a more universal way. I keep saying adults because it really is about people 25 and over looking at what's reality, what's waking up, what's love, What's, what's resilience? What's compassion? The differences in the ways that people look at these things are predictable. And they're predictable by their stage of development. Again, I'm kind of downloading a lot of stuff and I'm interested in your response because you often have a different point of view than I do. And you, you, know, you haven't spent 10 years doing research on ego development, which is great. I'm happy you haven't. I I, I've done it. I've done it from the inside. So <laughs> from that perspective, I want to bring it back to this notion of being aware of our awareness and trying to raise our trying to raise my awareness to incorporate the ability to see my own biases and that self inquiry and understanding 
my own maps, trying to make them more conscious. And then uh, the term I like to use is and reality testing, having these hypotheses about my map and how well it comports with quote reality or my experience, and then seeing where the divergences are. And also in part of this, in this, in this discussion, there's almost like a blossoming as you move through these stages where you move from the black and white to the complexity of gray, from an, a certainty of knowing how things are to a humility of knowing how much I don't know. These are paradoxical concepts, which I think is part of the challenge depending on where you are or where I'm at in my own stage of development. And so, you know, a question for you would be maybe, you know, how does our spiritual awakening, how does it get interpreted? You gave the example of Osama bin Laden, for example. How much variation is there within a stage? Are they fluid? Are they rigid categories? I mean, and, and one other question is this notion that they're sequential. So in other words, if I'm at one level and a person I'm interacting with is at a different stage, how are they going to perceive what I'm saying? How am I going to perceive what they're saying? And, and maybe a more real world example of how the difference in these stages show up in our interactions. So that's probably what we're going to unfold in these next few episodes. I want to just kind of do a little bit of a, an overview of an answer to what you're bringing up. That uh, So I'm going to use here first uh, Jane Lovinger's Stages of Ego Development, talk about this, and her name is spelled L-O-E-V-I-N-G-E-R. Like I said, she's a great scientist who bootstrapped her way up over 25 years by collecting data to illustrate these basic differences in this framework. And she, the frameworks that we apply or the frame of references that we apply to construct and interpret self and other. So ourselves as well as the world around us. And she ended up with nine of these stages or frameworks. And she started out with four that were based on other people's theories. So her first four were impulsive, conformist, conscientious, and autonomous. So again, these were characterizing these different types or frames of adults viewing themselves and reality, impulsive, conformist, conscientious, and autonomous. And from that framework, through about 25 years of collecting data on people, she developed a model of nine sequential stages or frames that represent progressively more complex way of perceiving yourself in relation to others and the world. So every stage provides a frame of reference that organizes and defines your experience. And each new stage is a reintegration of all the ones that have come before it. So that's a lot like a scientific paradigm. You know, you have a scientific paradigm, like the paradigm, you know, of early physics. It gets reorganized later through relativity theory, then reorganized again through subatomic physics. And each reorganization takes into account the data from all of the earlier organizations and sees those data in a new way with new insights and a totally new meaning 
So, you know, this is what happens for individual human beings. So it's really not a surprise that it happens in physics because it's people, humans, that are doing the physics. So they're also organizing their perceptions of the world the way they are organized themselves. I'm going to just go over the names of the nine stages, but I want to say at the same time that Lawrence Kohlberg's stages of moral development are a little bit different. He's looking at the issues of morality and ethics, like what, what guides people to feel that something is right or wrong? How does that sense of conscience develop, you know, where we won't allow, us, allow ourselves to do certain things because we believe they're harmful to others? So how does that develop across human cultures and human beings? And again, there's a systematic development. And then there's the stages of faith, James Fowler, that's F-O-W-L-E-R, Fowler. Kohlberg is K-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. So the stages of faith development also move from, you know, belief in authority to belief in other things. And then the reintegration of the idea that you don't have authority yourself over everything that happens. So people develop faith, spiritual belief, and so on also along a continuum. So there are also beliefs about the environment, about ecology, about what motivates people in a personal development. But I'm going to particularly rely on Lovinger's stages of development because I believe it is the most integrated theory. And in her theory, she is taking into account interpersonal development, cognitive development, emotional development, moral development, right. So all of those are integrated together and each stage is comprehensive of those points of view. That So the cognitive, the moral, the interpersonal, and consequently each stage gives you a picture of how that individual experiences self and other, how the individual's likely to be motivated in terms of moral development, and how that individual is likely to argue for what is reality. So it's a great map in that way. Now, is it comprehensive of everything people are? No, of course not. And it is evolving. And some people have developed new stages since Jane died, even I understand. I'm not so familiar. We may be talking to them also. So why would I even, you know, why do I think this is important? There's one very, very big reason is that when you can deeply embrace that people truly experience different realities. You can truly become more modest about what you're experiencing. And you may no longer need to say that, you know, someone else is, I don't know, just badly motivated or in the basket of deplorables or is, you know, not with it, you know, not with it in the way you're with it, you begin to realize that people are in different worlds and that if we're going to ever be able to engage or exhibit the kind of love that we feel in awakening, we're going to have to encompass all of these worlds and allow them to be legitimate and at the same time to recognize that the worlds of humans do divide things in ways that 
could lead to violence and war and so on. So the, that humans at the more comprehensive or higher stages of development need to be much, much better at comprehending all of the stages to move things in the direction of peace and nonviolence instead of being reactive to earlier stages and calling them names and humiliating them, being interested and understanding that that worldview that that person is having is legitimate. It's not like there's some world out there at all. You know, I mean, all of the worlds we're experiencing are legitimate and people at higher or more complex stages really need to comprehend that, especially if they're gonna wake up. They're waking up and they're, they're getting this view of the deeper reality and deeper love, that should contribute to greater humility and modesty about how other people see things as a way of expressing the love, you know, so that if you come back from your near-death experience and you divorce your spouse, um, it's likely you're not looking through a really complex window at your spouse it's likely that you're at a conformist level of development or maybe just beyond that, where a lot of Americans are, it's called self-aware. You know, this can be kind of diagnostic for ourselves. I would not apply it, the diagnosis to anybody but yourself because, uh, you know, it's like you have your own view of someone else's complexity also. But when you embrace this idea that there are these different stages which really involve different worlds. There's, I think, more hesitation to condemn other people as being wrong or stupid or, or out of it or uneducated or whatever. Anything that you want to say about that, and then I'm going to go over just the, just the names of the stages and a little bit of an overview, then there, there's finally this one thing I want to do, which is to mention these, these five questions, which we'll be using in our, our travels through the stages of development. Yeah, perhaps I just want to take a moment to reflect on some of the things I heard and that we've been discussing just to bring it back about reflecting on having this awareness or observation of ourselves to reflect on and discover our own biases and assumptions. And that in, in the process of doing this, one motivation would be to, to foster more inclusivity, growth, deeper, broader understanding of myself and others. We've unraveled a little bit of the complex, the complex nature of worldviews and I think how, how worldviews help us shape how we see, hear, and feel about ourselves, others, and the world. And bring in perhaps the idea of our motivation for why we seek awakenings, such as compassion, curiosity, or crisis. And I know we're going to go into more details and lay this out more clearly in the next episode. And as we move forward, I just want to, I guess, emphasize the importance for me in what I see as the aspect of self-inquiry and of understanding my own desires and motivations on this journey of awakening and growing up. I also want to reiterate, as you've mentioned, that there's a significant amount of research that supports Jane Levenger's work. 
And apparently, if you look at the Wikipedia page about her stages of development, German psychologists have taken this further and have come up with a higher stage called flow, which I, I think is a really interesting addition to where she left her theory. And again, it's supported by newer research. And so I guess where I hear you taking us is to an understanding of how we progress through these distinct and sequential stages of psychological, social, and emotional development and recognizing how cognitive complexity, genetics, environment, culture, how all of this helps form and inform our journey through these stages. Right, and that it's also the case, there are so many things that make it difficult to push yourself by your will into any kind of development. So everything you're saying, I think, is very accurate. When I was studying with her in the 1980s, they were working, I, I was not participating in this, in this particular project. Uh, her group was called the Institute for Social Sciences at Washington University. And her test was called the Washington University Sentence Completion Test. Um, and so she was working with a large group of academics and researchers throughout the United States to do a sample of the U.S. population. And they did a, a sample that was representative of our population to see what is the most frequent stage of development for United States citizens at that point. And it was just beyond conformity called the self-aware stage of development, which we'll talk about a lot because it is probably still, the majority of people walking around are at that stage of development, adults, adults again. And also part of that research was to look at what motivates people to develop. And this is where I got the information that it's a crisis. So what motivates people as adults is not self-determination. It's some kind of breakdown. And it can be a breakdown, a breakup, a breakthrough. I suppose it could be, you know, sometimes a breakthrough in meditation, psychedelics, if it creates a crisis. And a crisis really is a sense that you can no longer just assimilate everything to what you thought was true. Like now you have to begin to recognize that maybe you don't know what is true. And so you have to reorganize what you believe. So a crisis is what throws us into a question about what we believe to be true. And it usually throws us into that question through something that's painful, although you know there may be also expansive aspects to it, but it's breaking down in ego. It's breaking up biases and breaking through our prejudices. And so crisis is what motivates development and in this particular typology of ego development, each new stage is a reorganization of everything that has happened before in a new paradigm. That paradigm cannot be reached until you naturally see it by the breaking up of the other paradigms. So, you know, you can't say to yourself, I'm going to go study ego development and I'm going to get better at becoming say autonomous. However, if you know the stages of development and you go through a breakdown crisis, you can look at the map and say, huh, 
maybe now I'm organizing in this new way. So the map can help you, even though you can't make yourself move forward developmentally on it, but it can help you see the sequencing that humans move in, in the same way that if you were studying physics, you look at the history of physics to look at the different paradigms, not because you're just studying the history, but you're wanting to understand where you are right now in terms of what came before. So you can use these stages of development that way, uh, looking at, you know, here's where I might be reorganizing. And you can also use them another way. You can begin to listen for the themes of later stages of development in your teachers and mentors and see if you have a teacher or a mentor who really has one of these later stages of development, you might have questions for that. And those questions might lead you to a crisis. And so in psychotherapy, for example, sometimes there's a crisis as a result of the psychotherapy. So people come and they're in crisis and then we stabilize and go through whatever to organize that sense of, okay, this person's okay now. This is not any longer a crisis. But now we're gonna look at the assumptions that are being made that led to the crisis and that may create a crisis in the person. So, you know, as we're moving through development, pain, crisis, difficulty, those are the doors that open and that are really the motivators for reorganization of our sense of self, the world, others. So nothing is lost on the way. You know, you go through a divorce, you have a cancer, you get a diagnosis, you lose your money. All of those things are crises. They offer the opportunity for further development. But if you know kind of where you are developmentally, you can look at what the next stage is likely to look like and possibly use that crisis to develop in that direction. So that's one good way to use this map. And then there's a bad way to use it too. The bad way is to assume that this is linear, that people are making assumptions that one kind of person is better than another kind of person, or that you know there's some sort of thing that like, who cares whether you're at a higher stage or not? This is not that kind of map. This is, this is not about status. In fact, people that are at the higher stages often feel kind of alienated and not at ease and not having social status because their ways of seeing things are, are kind of outlandish, you know, compared to the, the major, um, you know, the, the most popular way of seeing things, which would be this conformist self-aware stage. It's going to hold more status socially. It's going the the let's say these the stages that organize around conformity are going to typically be, you know, more likely to be successful in the social environment, make more money, have more status, and so on, because they replicate the confirmation bias of the majority of people. So it's easier to sell things if you're selling things to the majority of people. That's where you're going to sell more things. So again, being at these higher or later stages does not mean your life is easier. It doesn't mean you're going to sell better things. You're going to make more money or have more status. It means that you have a more complex view. You may have more access to love and feelings of love. You may have more access to wisdom, you know, but it doesn't necessarily pay off. So the good way is to look at this in terms of guiding yourself through your crises. The bad way is to assume that the higher stages are just like you need to smack them down because they think they're better than other people, et cetera.
the approach with humility of trying to understand not only where my where I am at in my stage, but where others are, would create an openness and a receptivity to maybe seeing things I might not usually see or experience with others to pay attention, to try to become more aware. There are a couple of things that popped into my mind while you're while you were speaking. So one way of actually seeing where is the largest percentage of the population in terms of stages of development, maybe the easiest way to look at that culturally is look at ads. Television ads specifically are going to appeal to the widest demographic band with the largest number of people in that stage, which may be why I don't understand a lot of commercials. <laughs> I understand this, this idea that it's through crisis that this opportunity to grow unfolds. And I think about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self-actualization, that maybe there, there is also this internal motivation to grow, but it is almost as if it's constrained by the cultural broader context. I mean, as you were saying, if the majority of the population in the United States, let's say, is a conscientious conformist, then pushing beyond that, in essence, turns you into an outsider. So it's a challenging place to be when you're in the minority of worldview, where in expressing yourself, you may not be heard by the people at that stage in the way that you intend to be heard. Exactly. That's right. And I think that, that you know, again, the U.S. is, I believe, a culture of marketing. I think what we do better than almost any other culture is market. And so because we're based on marketing, we're based then on the level of people that you can market to the best. In this culture, it's going to be the majority of people that are at this conformist, conscientious, or self-aware level. And then anybody that has developed beyond that is going to have a harder time with the marketing approach to things and may also fall outside of popularity or even sometimes uh, kind of like understandability, you know, that's not necessary. I mean, in these later stages, there is a wisdom component and that wisdom component also helps in terms of being able to, to reach a bigger sort of larger framework or larger numbers of people or whatever. But in general, the later stages of development are not gonna pay off in America. <laughs> They're not gonna pay off. That's sort of one important thing to remember. There was one other thing about the stages that I hadn't said that I wanted to also make sure I include, which is that say you're, you know, say you're organizing yourself primarily, let's say, at the integrated stage of development. We'll talk about that when we get to it. At any moment when you are in crisis, you can reorganize at an earlier stage. You can become self-protective or impulsive because it's like we're always a baby. You know, we never let go of our infancy. So we can we can be at a very advanced stage, but then when we feel emotionally threatened, we behave like a baby. And it's the same with this developmental levels. You can lose the complexity of your ability to deal with others when you're feeling very emotionally threatened and you just become self-protective and you because you already know how to organize at that stage so everything is building on top you know going from one stage to the other it's building on top of the earlier simpler organizations so you can always revert back or people would say regress back to the earlier stage 
and then you become that kind of person in that situation. But you also know when you settle down that you have these other options that are, let's say, on board that you can make use of. It's not that when a person reaches a later stage of development that they're always acting from that stage. They can be reacting and regressing from earlier stages. And in the food fight of life, you can, everybody can go back to being, you know, self-protective and impulsive. So it, it's just that if you look at the arc of this, uh, of these stages of development, they do look like physics. They look like, it looks like you're, you know, you're, you're moving from this material world that's just so to this way of understanding that there's no material world at all, that everything is intersubjective and everything is subjective ultimately. And you get and and you get the reasons why as you move through these stages of development, because all of these stages are human. They're, they're all about what humans are experiencing. So in Lovinger's stages, the, the very first organization is what she calls pre-social, and that includes our earliest developments as an infant in the uh, sensory motor and before we recognize our personhood or the personhood of others. So her first official stage, which an adult can function at, is called impulsive. And this is when the child begins to assert a sense of self in a way that is egocentric. The next stage following that reorganizing the impulsive is the self-protective. And that's the stage where there's the first attempt at self-control of impulses. And at that stage, the person has the notion of blame and assumes that only other people are to blame. The next reorganization is called conformity or conformist. Most children are able to do this at a school age, and that means that they begin to see themselves and others in terms of groups and uh, sort of social norms, also to organize in terms of in-groups and out-groups and so on. Then reorganizing that, and that's the stage at which stereotypes come on board, things that are socially desirable or imagined to be the very best. So the reorganization of that conformity stage is self-awareness. So this is when the idea that you are a unique individual and that everyone is a unique individual comes on board. And this is the modal stage or the most popular stage of development in our society in North America. This also is a stage where people still embrace group stereotypes, but they're beginning to understand that not everyone who is in the group is always that way. For example, the stereotype of teenagers being impulsive, that, that a person might say, yeah, teenagers tend to be very impulsive and self-centered, but I know some teenagers who are not exactly like that. Then that self-aware, at this point, the reorganization of the self-awareness into the next stage is a big leap because again, it's the majority of people that you're gonna be leaving behind. And uh, the next stage is called the conscientious stage. This is the stage where there's a new sense of individual responsibility, individual guilt. There's a notion that social norms aren't determining what you're doing so that you have to develop an individual conscience that guides you. And that conscience is based, you begin to recognize 
on your own ideas and experiences. It's not about what authority says. That stage gets reorganized as what's called the individualistic stage. This is another big um, movement from conscientious to individualistic. At this stage, there is this recognition that there's a vast multiplicity of individuals and that everything is kind of organized by individual differences and circumstances. So the person becomes much more broad-minded and, and tolerant and sees complexity, but still assumes in some ways that the individuality and the complexity have to do with certain kinds of group norms or individual histories like trauma or something that would say this is what throws people into their individualism. So that the movement from the individualistic to the autonomous is really a big crisis because what allows you to move to the autonomous stage where you realize that you are entirely responsible for synthesizing your own ideas and that you are the person who is guiding what you do and that your achievements and status in life don't protect you, that you have to cope with things from a essentially a subjective, an entirely subjective point of view, that when you begin to recognize that, there is more of a sense of anxiety about social isolation. And there's also a very much more complex way of seeing things so that you can encompass both sides of a polarity. This makes you in some ways less stable because you know that it's not easy to find the right or the wrong way to do something. So there's a lot more ambiguity, conceptual complexity. Uh, and then the that gets integrated finally into what she calls integrated stage of development. So it's very rare uh, to find people with the integrated stage of development. And this is where learning is understood as being unavoidable, that all crises, all difficulties lead to something that's valuable in learning. And there's the development of wisdom, bigger empathy towards oneself and to others, and the awareness that inner conflict is what really haunts all humans, possibility of self-actualization as a goal rather than status or money. And then the possible 10th stage, which you, you mentioned is called flowing or flow. This idea is that as differentiation increases, um, there is the ability more to flow with experience and to not hold back and protect oneself so much. So these stages of development, we're going to go into them in um, other podcasts. And I think first, we're going to talk about them in three chunks, pre-conformity, conformity, and post-conformity, because that allows people to get an overview and not to get confused between pre-conformity and post-conformity which is one of the big confusions. If it's okay, Mike, I'm going to mention these five questions that we'll be using to sort through some of this. These questions come from podcasts of the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. And um, the first question is, are you capable of entertaining real doubts about your beliefs? That's the first question. The second question is, can you give the evidence that you would need to see in order to change your mind? The third question is, can you articulate the position of your opponents in a way that the opponents could recognize? The fourth one is, are you attacking ideas or the people who hold them? And the fifth one is, do you cut off from close relationships with people you disagree with? 
And if you do, why do you do it? And if you don't, why don't you do it? Now, those questions can be used to examine yourself and to examine your beliefs. However, some people at some stages are not capable of entertaining doubts. And we can talk about why. And they cannot give evidence for changing their minds. And we can talk about why. So again, we're going to use the questions as kind of guidelines through stages. And next time, we're going to get an overview of pre-conformity, conformity, and post-conformity before we go into some of the other intricacies of the stages. So is there anything else you want to add today? I want to thank you for the summary. I think that was, I found it very helpful. I hope in this in this episode that we leave our listeners with a deeper appreciation for the complexity of human minds, the value of diverse perspectives, and the significance of embracing worldviews with empathy and understanding. And I want to ask our listeners to reflect on their own experiences and beliefs and motivations for awakening as you continue your journey of self-discovery and growth, and that we hope that you stay tuned for the next episode of Waking Up is Not Enough, where we'll continue to explore the many dimensions of consciousness and awakening. And I want to thank you for joining us on this thought-provoking episode. And if you enjoyed the discussion, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Your feedback is really invaluable for spreading the word and getting more people to join the conversation, which we also hope that you will do. And we invite you to share the episode with friends and family and anybody you think is curious about the complexities of the human mind and the awakening journey and stay connected with us on social media for up updates and further insights into the world of consciousness and self-awareness. And we hope that you take a look at the app at realdialogue.com. And we will invite you to become part of our community and to join us in our monthly Ask Me Anything with Polly on the second Tuesday of each month. So until next time, keep exploring, questioning, and waking up to the wonders of life. And remember, waking up is not enough. Flourishing in the human space is the ultimate destination. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. Session one begins November 30th. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session one is November 30th to December 3rd. Session two will be February 1st through 4th. And session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com and from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training or anything in the podcast, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.